Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund. It's also made possible by the Kislak Family Foundation, supporter of education, arts, humanities, and Florida history, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, the 20th Anniversary Horns and Pipes concert at the Cathedral Church of St. Luke in downtown Orlando. A lot of people said, let's do this again in the audience. We want to hear this again. And then year after year, we get such great response from the audience. Uh, there's no reason to stop it. We'll visit with geckos and peacocks at former Attorney General Janet Reno's family home. And they say, gecko. They say their name so perfectly, you know that's why they're called that. Cuban exile poet Virgil Suarez, that and more ahead on Florida Frontiers. Twenty years ago, this Joseph Krinus arrangement of William Walton's Crown Imperial opened a concert for brass ensemble, pipe organ, and percussion at the beautiful Cathedral Church of St. Luke in downtown Orlando. This same piece will open the 20th anniversary Horns and Pipes concert on Sunday, February 10th. University of Central Florida trumpet professor John Almeida, cathedral musician Ben Lane, and a couple of their friends first came up with the idea for the concert. John Almeida. It just so happens that there were three professional brass quintets in Orlando at the time, and uh, Ben and I thought, wouldn't it be great to put together a, a showcase concert at the cathedral uh, that would feature each of the brass quintets? And in talking to the leaders of the other two quintets, I uh, came up with the idea of perhaps um, hiring a couple of extra players and then having all of us combine to play some uh, large brass ensemble music together. And uh, it, that was really very exciting. We had never done that before. And I think that the response by the uh, attendees was, was really terrific. And we included organ music on that first program and had all the instruments playing together. And it seemed like a fantastic thing, especially in the uh, wonderful acoustic of St. Luke's Cathedral. And so when, the, when it came time next year, to uh, plan a similar program, we decided we would concentrate more on the ensemble music rather than individual groups, individual small groups. Mm -hmm. But it would be the entire group playing the entire program with uh, the organ taking a significant role in all of that. When Ben Lane and John Almeida were planning and rehearsing for what would become the first Horns and Pipes concert in 1992, it was a difficult time for classical musicians and classical music lovers in Central Florida. After more than 40 years of performing, the Orlando-based Florida Symphony Orchestra was in the process of dissolving. Many of the musicians playing in the first Horns and Pipes concert would perform in the last Florida Symphony Orchestra concert just a few months later. 
John Almeida. A number of us uh, were playing um, as extra players in the in the Florida Symphony Orchestra, and uh, you know things were not very good at that point in time uh, for the orchestra members because they they saw that um, uh, uh, that the orchestra was probably going to be closing its doors. Um, but uh, the Horns and Pipes concert was actually a, a kind of a shot in the arm because we got to play together in a different kind of setting than you get to play in a symphony orchestra. Uh, and it uh, it was really a lot of fun because all of us, you know, went to college and had brass ensemble experience, either in a small group or a large group. And so it was kind of nice to to do that again after all those years. And it was just so much fun for all of us to, to take part in. Despite the demise of the Florida Symphony Orchestra 20 years ago, and more recently the closing of the Orlando Opera Company in 2009, John Almeida and Ben Lane say opportunities for classical musicians in Central Florida have expanded over the past two decades. It has gotten better. You know, the uh, the uh, Orlando uh, Philharmonic um, has uh, continued success every year with their concert season. It expands every year. Um, and when you go to uh, go to their concerts, either as an attendee or if you're, in, if you're fortunate to sit in the orchestra like, like I am from time to time, you look out at the audience base and it grows. You know, you see uh, concerts where almost all, if not all, of the seats in the audience in the Bob Carr are, are taken. And um, there are uh, many other smaller groups that have come out of uh, this renewed interest in classical music. You'll see them playing in churches like St. Luke's. You'll see them playing in different venues across the city. So I think that uh, we see more work now for uh, classically trained instrumentalists in the Orlando than we, than we did uh, a number of years ago. And through all of those years, all those ups and downs, St. Luke's Cathedral has remained committed to um, presenting good classical music, primarily sacred music, in concert settings as well as in liturgical services. Um, and sometimes we have to fill, fill the gap when uh, an orchestra or, you know, a, an opera or something closes. Um, we are a little more intentional about programming some of those musicians who have uh, who have lost their venues, and um, <clears throat> we're very involved in music making in the in the community and in inviting local musicians to come into our church to perform for lots of different types of occasions. So I, I like to think of St. Luke's as sort of a little mecca for classical musicians in Central Florida. John Almeida and Ben Lane say there was already a large repertoire to choose from when planning the horns and pipes programs. These concerts have helped expand that repertoire even further, introducing new arrangements and original compositions over the years. The real interest in brass chamber music uh, began after the Second World War, uh, primarily in Great Britain by a group called the Philip Jones Brass Ensemble. Um, and as that ensemble grew in stature and um, more and more composers began to write works for them, and they, uh, they started uh, composing pieces for larger and larger groups. Um, I think the real catalyst for the, the, the music that we play at, at Horns and Pipes really is Joseph Krynas, who's, who's been the conductor for many, many years. Um, he's a, a very notable composer, and um, he's transcribed an abundance of orchestral works for not just brass and percussion, but brass, percussion, and, and, and pipe organ. In addition to that, uh, we have a French horn player as part of our ensemble whose name is John Ryther. And I think just about every year he has written a new composition to include our brass and percussion and uh, organ, the entire ensemble. And in fact, uh, we're, we 
we premiere those new works every year at this, the concert of Horns and Pipes. John Almeida says that over the past 20 years, the Horns and Pipes programs have demonstrated that just about any work lends itself to brass, organ, and percussion in the hands of the right arranger. Throughout these, these 20 years, uh, when I've talked with Mr. Krinas about the repertoire for the upcoming year, he'll, he'll say, well, there's a piece for choir for, for vocal for vocal group that would work really good for brass. He said, I think, and then he said, well, I think I'm taking, I'm going to take a, a string piece that was written by Mozart and, and transcribe it for, for brass. And I'm thinking, can we do that? And then, you know, Joe is such a master craftsman at, at putting this together that, uh, you know, you look, I'll look at all the parts because I have to distribute them amongst the players, and I'm thinking, how in the world are we going to be able to play this on our instruments? And then we, sit, we come to the first rehearsal, we sit down, he gives the downbeat, and it's like, oh, he really, he's really brilliant in that matter. Four years ago, Joseph Krinas passed his baton to conductor Michael Garassi. For this 20th anniversary concert, Krinas will return to conduct some of the pieces he has arranged for the Horns and Pipes concerts in the past. Jeff Moore is chair of the music department at the University of Central Florida and a longtime percussionist for the Horns and Pipes concerts. It's very enjoyable to play with brass players, and it's especially enjoyable to play with the finest brass players in the area, and that's what Horns and Pipes offers us. Uh, the the uh, cathedral... Uh, the place where we play, our instruments sound great. We love resonance, and, and the, the, the brass and the percussion blend so well with the organ. It's a fantastic opportunity to play with organ and brass, which you don't get to do exclusively. You might play it in part of a larger ensemble, but not separate like that. And since we do a lot of transcriptions, the, the well-known and, and uh, well-loved percussion parts are there, but then uh, our arrangers augment the arrangements because we don't have strings and give a lot of the string parts over to the keyboards and, and organ and, other, uh, the, and the other percussion instruments with the organ. So we get a chance to play some of the parts we didn't normally play in, the, uh, in, in some of the other ensemble settings. So it gives us a chance to play with fantastic players and a great-sounding facility uh, with uh, some of the parts that, that we've come to love and some of the parts that, that, that we learn to love. <laughs> Jeff Moore gives a specific example of how percussionists get to do more in the horns and pipe setting than they do in other ensembles. Yeah, when we play uh, the Jupiter from uh, the Holst, uh, the planets, uh, the the famous uh, string introduction, da 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 that's in the violins, and you'll hear that in, uh, when we played it in xylophone and bells. And so you get to play these moving uh, motor rhythms that are normally in other instruments, and, and now we get to play them in percussion along with our famous timpani parts to the Jupiter and, and all of the other percussion parts that you'd come to expect. Over the past two decades, Jeff Moore has accumulated many fond memories of playing the Horns and Pipes concerts. The guest artists are all wonderful. One of the pieces we're playing this year, Crown Imperial, is always a, a great time to play that. There's the One of the tests of a great arrangement is when it sounds like it was originally composed for that instrumentation, and I think that Joe Krinas did a fantastic job with Crown Imperial. It's one of those... You, you know you're playing a master uh, piece, and it's really a masterly, a masterful arranged uh, masterpiece. So, uh, Crown Imperial. So we'll have that experience again. And uh, I, I guess with guests, uh, um, a number of years ago we had Michael Burrett, who's the percussion professor at Eastman now, and he played a marimba concerto with the group, and uh, and then played some solo marimba. And in the in, in the church, it was fantastic sound, and of course it was great to to collaborate with. Uh, 
uh, with uh, Michael, and that's a memory that I, we had him here for UCF to do some master classes and things prior to the concert. So it was a real good residency. So that 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 was one of my big uh, memories. But playing with all the horn soloists, uh, playing the concerti, and hearing that kind of virtuosity and being a part of that uh, energy is is every year it's renewing. It's uh, every year it's 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 exciting. I haven't I haven't had a bad year yet in terms of my experience with them. So it's fantastic to play. Ben Lane and John Almeida reflect on their favorite horns and pipes moments. One thing that I've really enjoyed about this concert year after year is we've had guest uh, soloists. Some of them have been Yamaha concert artists. Uh, Many of them are also brought into town to do uh, workshops and clinics at UCF and to to perform in other areas. But um, the highlight of it is them playing their solos with our ensemble along with us and so we um, have had the joy of welcoming prominent artists over the years and in fact one of the ones that I enjoyed most was the year that we brought in a guest organist um, David Craighead, a very prominent organ teacher from Eastman School of Music in New York State and um, he played some solos while he was uh, in town, and that for me that was a special joy. Mm-hmm. But there are many soloists who uh, who play other instruments. We've been very very fortunate over the over these years to uh, to bring in, as Benjamin said, the, some of the most prominent instrumentalists soloists uh, in the United States. Uh, uh, the first one that comes to mind is M- Michael Mulcahy who is a second trombone in the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. He's a very good friend uh, of um, Mr. Krinas, and uh, he was in Orlando for a week, and we played some uh, some music that was crafted for him uh, just by Mr. Krinas. Uh, there was a, there, matter of fact, there was one work that he played that was for solo trombone and organ, that, where Ben accompanied him. And uh, to hear players of his level play with 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 us in the in the in the great setting at St. Luke's it'll send chills up and down your spine because they play so well the soloists are so wonderful that it raises the the level of performance by the ensemble that supports them while making the horns and pipes concert an annual event was not the original plan Ben Lane and John Almeida say that the audience reaction back in 1993 left them no choice after the concert People were asking if to, for a repeat of that kind of a program. It was so unique that, um, and in such a great location, really, that uh, a lot of people said, let's do this again we, in the audience. We want to hear this again. And then year after year, we get such great response from the audience. Uh, there's no reason to stop it. <laughs> we just keep it going. That's true. That's true. It's a. We didn't have any idea. We we uh, we thought, okay, we'll, we'll go ahead and craft this concert, and. Uh, we thought the bonus would just be to do some large ensemble pieces, and uh, as as Ben just said, the uh, the response by the audience was overwhelming. They they were getting the cathedral was getting phone calls for, you know, a week or more afterwards by people who had gone, and they wanted to hear it again. And and I, I know of a group of folks from um, one of the the big corporations here in town that uh, they, they love the Horns and Pipes concert so much, they, they put it on their calendar as a group, and, and, and they all go to dinner, and then they come to the Horns and Pipes concert. It's like an annual event. So probably out of the 20 years or so we've been doing this, you, there'll probably be a number of people in the audience that have gone you know, virtually every year. A pre-concert discussion will help to celebrate the 20th anniversary of the Horns and Pipes concerts. Ben Lane. At 2 o'clock on that afternoon, Sunday, February 10th, 
we are inviting everybody to, to come an hour before the concert begins to attend, uh, well, an interview, basically, where you, Ben, will be asking similar questions of people like us. <laughs> um, we'll have some, um, some reflections from people who are in the ensemble, from people who have put together this program over the years, mm-hmm. like John Almeida and, and Joe Krinas mm-hmm. and uh, Michael Garassi, who's the current conductor of the ensemble. We'll talk about the history of Horns and Pipes, um, briefly, and what we do, and more importantly, uh, the the effect that the music has in communicating uh, communicating the music through this real unique media. Um, these this huge ensemble of brass instruments, a lot of percussion instruments as well, uh, combined with the pipe organ. It's it's a great combination, and so we hope that uh, people will want to come at two o'clock on that afternoon to to just hear lively interviews and and reflections of of, of what it's been like over the years to be part of this ensemble. The 20th Anniversary Horns and Pipes Concert will be held February 10th at the Cathedral Church of St. Luke in downtown Orlando. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. 2013 marks the 500th anniversary of the naming of our state by Ponce de Leon. To find out more, you can watch the original courtroom drama Ponce de Leon Landed Here on our website at myfloridahistory.org. You can also click on the shop button to get the new book, The Voyages of Ponce de Leon, which contains the work of some of Florida's best scholars. While you're there, click on the Join Now button to support our great projects and programs. You'll receive our journal, the Florida Historical Quarterly, our newsletter, the Society Report, and much more. That's myfloridahistory.org. If we could talk to the animals, just imagine it, chatting to a chimpanzee. Former Attorney General Janet Reno grew up in Florida surrounded by animals. Reno's sister, Maggie Herchala of Martin County, tells Janie Gould that Reno still loves the geckos and peacocks who live on the family property. The Reno family of rural South Dade County, Henry and Jane Wood Reno and their four children, lived surrounded by animals. There were the normal cows and chickens, of course, but also donkeys, macaws, screaming peacocks, and a rescued egret that had just one wing. Daughter Janet Reno, who was attorney general in the Clinton administration, again lives in the family home. Her sister, Maggie Herchala, served on the Martin County Commission for two decades. Maggie says their father, a Miami Herald reporter, often brought animals home after work. Daddy tended to come home from the spotlight bar with 
oddest collection of animals. Somebody would arrive bemoaning the fact that his wife would no longer let him keep the macaw. And Daddy would come home with Mickey, the macaw. Daddy also came home with a monkey. And he came home with two donkeys, Felix and Pedro. Are there still animals in the household? Geckos. The large Asian geckos that get to be a foot long. And they walk around on the ceiling upside down. Inside the house? Oh, yes. They most like it inside the house. And they say, gecko. They say their name so perfectly. You know that's why they're called that. They're nocturnal. So you have to be sitting with the lights turned down, and then right above your head you hear, Gecko! Do they want to be fed or what, or are they just announcing their presence? No, but they're better at eradicating roaches than anything I have ever known in South Florida. We did have a bad time some years back when the house was about to be tinted for termites. My sister is very soft-hearted. She thought that she should catch all of the geckos in the house and temporarily cage them outside so they wouldn't be hurt by the tinning. She caught a half a dozen smallish geckos, but she had not yet caught Moby Gecko. Moby Gecko was about a foot long, and he lived behind the refrigerator in the kitchen. Janny finally crept in when it was dark, <laughs> flicked the light on and grabbed Moby Gecko by the tail and was left with Moby Gecko's tail. Now, Janny majored in chemistry. I minored in biology, so she didn't know that Moby Gecko was okay. In other words, the tail would grow back? Yes. I assured her that she had not killed Moby Gecko, but she was feeling very bad about the whole thing. They were scheduled to tend, and they came in and tended for termites. And this is the former Attorney General of the United States, wanted to make sure she caught all the geckos. Yes, but she was state's attorney then. Six months later, I was down there visiting, and I went into the kitchen in the dark and flipped the light on. And here was this very large gecko, and his tail was about a half an inch long. It had to be Moby. Who else had left his tail with Janny? So I had to wake up Janny and tell her, Moby Gecko was back. I don't know how he survived being tended for termites, but you could not have had another gecko in that place of that size with that missing tail unless it was Moby. You visit your sister from time to time, of course, and you see these geckos still, Maggie? Yes, but mostly we hear them. The nights are exciting because they're peacocks. My mother in 1947 found a gypsy selling peacock eggs on the Tamami Trail and bought two, and she put them under a duck. Ducks will raise other birds' babies. The ducks raised up a male and female peacock. There have been peacocks around the place ever since. Come springtime, they scream. My father loved grand opera. When he would turn up Aida as loud as it would go, the peacocks would all scream. Nowadays, when we have somebody spending the night who hasn't been there before, we have to warn them that you may hear the gecko going gecko, and you may hear the peacock screaming, and not to worry, it's okay. Maggie Herchala, an environmentalist and land planning expert, still lives in Martin County. Janie Gould from WQCS prepared that report. And they This is Florida Frontiers. Over the past few decades, some of the most enduring and poignant Florida poetry has been written by Cuban exiles. Bill Dudley talks with novelist and poet Virgil Suarez. 
I'm just a poet. I'm a working poet. This is what I say everywhere I go. The gift given me is I'm able to afford to sit down and write and then love every minute of it. Novelist and poet Virgil Suarez. Born in Cuba, he and his parents came to the U.S. by way of Spain in 1974. He's been called one of the most important Latino writers of his generation. Often his work weaves two or more themes together, combining, as in this poem, the landscape of natural Florida with the politics of the immigrant. The wind frustrates itself, held in the thin leaves, sifted through the tendril, rope-like roots of the mighty banyan, stumps of elephant feet, tough gray skin of a tree that doesn't bend against strong wind or hurricane. This one survived Andrew and Coral Gables, where the Cubans live now, They grow backwards into the ground and sprout more roots. How like exile to leave such marks on those spots, the places where life continues in exile. The hand clutches any dirt it can call its own. Poetry can't divorce itself from all sorts of things in life. I mean, including politics, religion, family. I mean, all of these things have always been there in my path, so I can't negate them. I have to deal with them. And I think I tend to incorporate as much of it as is humanly possible. Politics plays a large role in my work because of the politics of being in exile. But he's lived in the Florida panhandle, raising a family while teaching creative writing at FSU. As living far away from the South Florida community provided him with new perspectives and new ideas. These days I write a lot of nature poems because I live part of the year in Tallahassee and then part of the year in Key Biscayne. So you can't be a poet and not and ignore nature in, in both of those places. I've always considered myself a, a metropolitan poet, you know, a poet of concrete. I mean, I always wrote about the city cars, you know, and then all of a sudden, you know, I find myself teaching in a small town living in the woods. Orchids, capuchin monkeys loose from an animal distributor warehouse. Memories of the bearded lady and the lizard man retired now in Palatka holding court in the shade of a parasol by their trailer. Russian midgets, rockets shot into the eye of the moon. This magic of fireflies zapping their phosphorescence in the night air. Jasmine, gardenia, Somewhere, a man barbecues four-inch thick steaks in a thing called the green egg. A fire. I think all of that kitschy stuff that's been around Florida since the beginning, the uh, giant alligators made out of plasters and oranges and all of that, I think that sort of shimmers for people. I mean, people coming in the way that I did at one time, and you sort of fall in love with it. Initially, you think how strange, how odd, but then it, it sort of works its way into your life, and it blends in, hopefully it blends in with a lot of the nature that's so beautiful in this state. But can anyone least of all a writer, ever really leave behind the sensibilities of his or her childhood. Poet Carolina Ospital teaches literature at Miami-Dade College. Some of the writers write directly about the exile experience. Other writers, particularly those that have been here a long time who perhaps write in English, may not necessarily always have the exile experience as the topic, yet their work reveals what I call an exile consciousness, a yearning for connection, a sense of other, maybe the importance of imagination or memory, 
so that these themes uh, are revealed, even though the poem may deal with a different topic other than directly the exile experience. More than ever, I think we're all exiles. I think it's it's sort of become a universal. You know, we begin somewhere and then we move. Nobody really is born into a place, a little town in Ohio, and then stays there all their lives. And it's it, 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 it's kind of a pathos that's there that I tap into in my work that I like. And I think it's a universal human experience. You know, the search for family, for home, for roots, for a place that you can say, I was born here. Poet and novelist Virgil Suarez. I'm Bill Dudley. With funding from the Florida Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, this report was produced by the Florida Humanities Council. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Join us right here again next week, and until then, visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org and join the conversation on Facebook at Florida Historical Society. Have a great week. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund. It's also made possible by the Kislak Family Foundation, supporter of education, arts, humanities, and Florida history, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach.